0: All right, we are in Romans chapter 5. There's a famous uh, book by the famous author, C.S. Lewis, and it's a a famous title. I've never actually read the book myself, um, but I I, I own it, probably own more than one copy of it, uh, and it's called Mere Christianity. And, um, you know, I I would suppose that the title of the book is, uh, you know, definitive of what's inside. And that is to just give a a definition of uh, what what is Christianity? What does it mean to be a Christian? And I love C.S. Lewis and I love his work and I love his ministry, but he's a plagiarist. Because what he basically did is he took Paul's writing to the book of Romans and he put a title on it and then he wrote his own book. (laughs) Because um, what we have before us as we study Romans is we have uh, mere Christianity. This is what it is. If you were to put one title uh, over the entirety of what Paul is writing to the Roman church, that's what you would call it. This is this is what Christianity is. And if someone were to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Uh, the, here, take the book of Romans, mere Christianity. This is it in its fullest and in its purest form. And so, Paul systematically, from the beginning, begins to build now this um, treatise, this discourse, this sermon, um, this understanding of exactly what it means in the most simple and clear and systematic way uh, as possible. And so, he begins at the beginning with sinners. And the whole world is made up of them. From the from the least to the greatest, the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the first three chapters, uh, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, just goes through and he just proves, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that there is none righteous. That there is no one, no human being, that ever has lived, that's alive presently, or that's ever coming in the future that will be able to make heaven or the standard of God's acceptance through their behavior or through their ability to be righteous enough or good enough to earn the favor of God. It absolutely cannot be done, that all have sinned and come short, and he proves that. But then at the end of chapter 3, he brings that to its proper conclusion. Because the question is, okay, well, if there is no one that can earn heaven, then how in the world does one get into heaven and will there be anyone there? And so at the end of chapter three, he brings it to the conclusion that heaven or righteousness or justification, you know, those words are all synonymous, those things come to us not as a byproduct of our behavior but rather as something that God gives to us. It's something that is imputed. And it's imputed through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That on the cross, God had become a man. He had lived the perfect life that no one else could live, thereby earning righteousness through his behavior. But then he died on a sinner's cross enduring the punishment and wrath that our sins deserved. So you have a righteous man dying in place of unrighteous people, and thereby, in that death, he released the righteousness that he earned. He gave up the rights to it, in a sense. And now, What he does is he says, whosoever will put their faith in this gift, this righteousness, that person can be declared righteous even though they're a sinner because the price for sin has been paid in the person of Jesus Christ. And so justification or righteousness is not earned by sinful man trying to behave, But rather, righteousness is imputed or gifted or given to someone based on what Jesus did and then it's received by a sinner by faith. It's justification, righteousness, by faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so that's how a person is saved. Now, in chapter 4, as Paul continues now to build on this, he answers the question of proof. Because obviously... You know, that's a radical claim. Okay, well, I can get into heaven, not based on what I do, but based on what he did. I need more than just an apostle from the first century telling me that that's the way it works. Tell me something from history. And so he reaches back to Abraham and David, and he proves it. And he says, listen, this has always been the way it is with God. Righteousness is given, not earned. And that's what he does in chapter 4. Now, as we cross into chapter 5 this morning... Paul is going to answer three more questions that he anticipates that we will have, if we're just reading and, and building this uh, this case. Those three questions that we have before us in chapter 5 are, number one, what else does this salvation afford me? What other benefits, what other blessings, What what other things are attached to my acceptance now that I'm accepted before God? That's the first question that he answers. The second question, which is a supreme question, is why? What's God's motive? What, for what reason would God do what He did in order to save me? What, what's behind that? I, I want to know. I mean, hey, if someone's going to give me something, you know, I'm happy to receive it. But I want to know what, why? What? What, what do they want? <laughs> you know, in the whole thing. And so He answers yeah. that question. And then the third question that that we would have if we kind of think this thing through is. Just practically, how is it possible that one man can die and that can afford many men salvation? How does that work? Because I can understand if one man dies and one man gets in because, you know, that's equal. But how can one man die and it be for everybody? That's, I don't understand that. That doesn't equate with me, you know, is that just, is that fair, you know, kind of a thing, and he answers that question. So these are the things that are before us here in chapter five, but we begin with the first of those three, which is what comes with imputed righteousness. Now, imagine for just a moment that you um, went out to your mailbox on, on a given day and you received a letter. And in that letter, it says that you, congratulations, um, you have been chosen, um, and and it is now um, a, a, a fact of law that you have been adopted by the British royal family you know and you are now you are now um uh, an official uh citizen of of uh of, of you know Britain and you are uh accepted you're in the family you know you're you're there now you would look at that and you'd be like great <laughs> 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 all right <laughs> you know and then you get a phone call you know from you know your neighbor and your neighbor says hey i just got this letter too and you'd be like, All right, you just throw the thing out. You are like, this thing, this thing means nothing, you know. And the whole thing, you say, well, this might afford me something if we were at war with Britain, you know, and I might be able to pull rank in things and just, you know, I could declare safe on things because I am a member of the royal family. But otherwise, this means very little to me. But if you were to take that letter very seriously, you say, okay, well, they're saying that I am a citizen of the royal family, and so as a citizen, or not a citizen, but a member of the royal family, I want to know, what do I get? What do I get now that I'm a member of the royal So you call Buckingham Palace, and you, know, and you ask the question. And, and you say, all right, well, I get this letter, and it says that I'm a citizen. What does it mean? We'll say, well, very first and foremost, if we, if we declare war on the United States, you're at ease. <laughs> you don't have to worry. We're not declaring war on you. There's peace between you and Britain. And he was like, <laughs> you say, great, thanks. But there's more. Oh, there's more. What, what is it? Well, as a citizen and, and as a um, you know, a member of the royal family, uh, you also have residency, right of residency, in Buckingham Palace. You, you are part of the family. So if you want to live here in the palace, you're free to do that. All of the, the, the place is yours. You have free run of the place as though you were a son. that's kind of interesting. (laughs) Okay, you know, what what else? Well, you're part of the family, and if you're a grown member of the family, well, then you also get a credit card. You get access to the funds. (laughs) You get, hey, the family resources are your resources, you know, the whole thing. You also get a say in the decisions that are made. You know, I mean, it's kind of a shadow thing these days. The royalty in Britain doesn't mean much, you know, but um, but, but with whatever influence that we have in government, you also have equal say in all of that uh, as we discuss and and, and, and make decisions concerning. And all of a sudden you begin to realize that citizenship in the royal family means more than just words on a page. And it means more than just peace in wartime. That there are Uh, there are good strings attached to this position that I now hold. And the more you realize what they are, the more you want to know what they are. What, What are these things? And so what Paul says is that, listen, you have been justified by God. You have been accepted in Christ. You are now a member, not of some humanly royal family, but you're a member of God's family. You are the bride of Christ. And as such, there are certain benefits and blessings that are attached to that, that are the birthright now of every one of us that belong to him. And so Paul begins to say, hey, listen, this righteousness, this salvation, that's just the beginning. There is much, much more than that. And he begins to explain what some of those things are here in chapter 5, the first five verses. He says, therefore, now anytime you see that word, therefore, it's called a connective junction. It's connecting what was previously said with what is about to be said. So in light of what has previously been spoken, that you are saved, accepted by God, because of this, therefore being justified by faith, declared righteous, we now, and here's number one if you're taking notes, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that prior to our salvation, we were enemies of God. We were at enmity with him, is the word that the Bible uses. In Ephesians, Paul said that we were aliens and alienated from God, cut off. Now, if you were to see an alien, (laughs) you would recognize right away that he is not one of us. And until you were familiar with him and there was some bound of relationship, there there would be an enmity or a fear, a disjointedness, a detachment between you and that alien. And that's what all of us were and are apart from Jesus Christ. We are alienated from God. We're separated from him. But now we have peace with God. And there's only one way to make peace with God. And that is through Jesus Christ. Sometimes you'll hear someone on their deathbed who's lived a completely godless life. And in a false confidence, they'll look at the loved ones standing around their bed waiting for them to pass away. And they'll say, well, I've made my peace with God. I made my peace with the man upstairs. And oftentimes what they're saying is that they've accepted the fact that they're about to die. (laughs) But they haven't actually made peace with God. They're still at enmity with God because there's only one way to make peace with God. And that is to accept the person of his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way exclusive, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. And the very first and foremost thing that each one of us possess when we give our lives to Christ is that we now have peace with God. We're at one with him. What an amazing place to be. To be able to lay your head down on your pillow at night and to know that you're right with God. That when he looks at your life, he's at peace with you. And that when you lift up your eyes towards heaven, you're at peace with him. That's an amazing treasure. And it is an amazing treasure. Unfortunately, most people stop right there. They make peace with God through Christ. And then they never go any further to find out what else is afforded to them because of it. But Paul goes on. He says there's an also in verse 2. He says, by whom, that is by Christ, also, so now the second thing that we have, now that we're accepted, is that we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The second thing that we have, our benefit of believing, is that we now have access to God. Now think about what that means for just a minute, that you have access to God. Now imagine my brother, he used to work for GE and he was pretty high up in, in GE. He had eight hundred people under him. I think GE has like seventy thousand employees uh worldwide, or I don't know what it's up to at this point in the whole thing, you know, but he was kind of like on the um upward trajectory in the company, you know. And he, you know, had a lot of leeway, and he was traveling all over the world, and people knew who he was, and, you know, he was even a little bit secretive about some of the things that he was doing, and, you know, it was interesting, you know, it was intriguing, this whole thing. But if he wanted to have access, even at his high position, to Jeff Imelt, you know, the CEO of uh, GE, you know, he wouldn't be able to do that. Because even at his level, having worked his way to where he was at that time, he didn't have the clearances or the, um, the, the, the um, prestige to, to have access to the one who would be the top decision maker within that company, the CEO himself. Now, imagine someone who has access or clearance or authority to reach the president of the United States. Think about what it takes to get to that level, wherein you have the private secret BlackBerry cell phone number. <laughs> you know, uh, of the President of the United States. Apparently you just have to be a terrorist with a lot of money and you can get those things. You know? But if you wanted to do it legitimately, you know, to have access to the President of the United States, you would have to have a lot of uh, um, seniority and a lot of clearances in order to have that kind of access. But what you and I have is not access to the CEO of a great corporation or even to the leader of a great nation. We have access to the God of the whole universe. You ever have someone go over your head on something? You know, like, you know, you it happens to me every single day of my life, you know. <laughs> because I will give my kids an edict or a command and they'll go over my head. They'll say, Mom! <laughs> <laughs> they know how to go over my head, you know. Well, Dad is the head, but Mom is the neck, so she can turn the head wherever she wants to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right now, <you> know. <laughs> <laughs> taking notes this morning <laughs> and then of course you know the neck comes and says well honey you know we could <laughs> okay all right all right yeah they can you know whatever spend it just take it take it just go run you know run <laughs> You have someone go over your head, you know, and sometimes it can be a little bit humiliating. Sometimes it can be off-putting, you know, in uh, the whole thing. And Sometimes we've had to resort to that in other situations. We have an unfair supervisor or boss in an employment situation or in some situation, and, and we know that we're right and our just in our cause, and we want to accomplish what we're doing, and so we go over their head, you know, and we'll go to their supervisor or their boss, and we'll make our case, and then they have the authority then to work things in our favor on down the line. Now, you can't go any higher when you're going over heads than God's head. And what we have is we have access to God in such a way where, in every situation, no matter what that situation is, no matter who it's dealing with, no matter how complicated, no matter how secular, no matter how uh, seemingly uninvolved God might be or care to be. That we can go to him for all of those things. And the Bible says that he is sovereign and able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or even think. We have access to God. Jesus said, whatsoever you ask of me in prayer believing, believe that you've received it and it will be done for you. Jesus said, if two of you agree concerning anything and you bring it before God in prayer, you can walk away knowing that it will be done. After causing a fig tree to wither with his word, the disciples marveled at his power. And Jesus said, if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to a mountain, be removed and thrown into the sea, and it will obey you. Therefore, whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believe, and it will be done for you. Jesus said, ask, and you will receive. Jesus said, ask, and you'll receive that your joy might be full. Over and over and over and over again, the Bible tells us to ask, to capitalize on this privilege of access to God that we have. And isn't it amazing how little praying we do, how often we use the authority that we have to go directly to God and to ask. Cast your cares upon him, Peter writes. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus while you just wait for God to work things out. But we have access to God. It's an amazing privilege to realize that there is nothing too hard for him. Pastor Bobby's teaching through Ephesians chapter 1 currently on Sunday mornings is to just read some of those things, the truths that it says about the authority of Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 1 that he is far above all principalities, powers, and rulers of this world. That means that he's above all. He has sovereign control over all of it. It says also in Ephesians chapter 1 that he is the head over all things to the church. We're the church. All things are all things, and he's the head. Meaning that he can govern and control all things. He can govern and control our marriages and our families. He can govern and control our finances. He can govern and control the circumstances that we find ourselves in, in our workplaces or in our uh, mental situations or in the things that we get ourselves into that are even troublesome to us. He's over all things. And we have access to him by grace. And you know what's amazing, what it says there at the end of uh, of verse uh, 2? It says that we stand. Do you see that word stand right there? That we stand. Meaning that we don't come before him and he causes us to cower. But we stand before him. The idea is, when you stand before a great king, when you would come in, they would either raise the scepter to you, meaning that you were accepted in their presence, or they would condemn, in which case you would be removed forcefully from their presence. And to be able to stand in the presence of God, meaning that when we approach him, he raises the scepter. He gives us approach freely before him. We're accepted. And he listens to us because of Jesus Christ. What an amazing thing. When God looks at you as a Christian, he looks at you as though you were Jesus Christ himself. Because that's who you're in when you come to him. And so he accepts you in that same thing. Now, why is it that we don't pray? Because, you know, I think every one of us here would confess, myself included, that I don't pray nearly as much as I should. And I'm not as quick to bring things to God as I should. Why? Why do we hesitate when we have such an incredible access? I think one of the reasons, first of all, is because we just feel unworthy. You know, I'm I'm unworthy of the things that I'm asking. I caused the problem that I'm in. I caused it, so now i got to fix it, you know, or whatever the case might be. Or I know what's going on in my mind or in my heart, and I know that God knows what's going on in my mind or in my heart, and if I get too close, then those things are going to be exposed, and I'm afraid of what he'll say. And so I just feel unworthy, and so I don't come. You need not feel that way. When God sees you, he sees Christ. He knows that we're just dust. He's working change in our lives, and we're to come to him. He invites us to come, as we are. He's working those things out. He's going to change those things. We'll get to that later in the chapter. Another reason why we don't come, I think, often is because we think there's going to be strings attached to our prayers. Well, I'm asking God to do something, but if I approach him and ask him, then he might ask me. And he might begin to say, well, I'm glad you asked that because I've been meaning to talk to you about a few things. (laughs) How about we, you know, and we kind of think of God like he's one of our parents. He's going to leverage the situation according to his wisdom or something. He doesn't do that. He's very patient. And so oftentimes we just, you know, stay back in the whole idea. But we stand in his presence. We're accepted. So we have peace with God. We have access to God. Number three, it says that we also, verse three, Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Now, at this point, for me, there's a little bit of a record scratch. Okay, Uh, you know, you know that thing like where the music is just playing along and you're really kind of into it and it's beautiful and it's kind of like, uh, you know, putting you in a trance and then all of a sudden someone takes the needle on the record and they just go, you know, and drag it across the thing and you're like, what? Peace with God. Oh, this is glorious. Access to God. I stand before him. He loves me. Yes, Lord. Raise my hands. We glory and rejoice in tribulations and trials. Wait, this is a benefit? <laughs> Buckingham Palace. <laughs> you also have to clean the rooms. <laughs> no, wait, what? What do you mean we glory in tribulation? Glory meaning we rejoice, we exalt. We're uplifted. You know, we we yeah, trials, trouble, Issues, messes, thank you. You know, what do you mean we glory in tribulation? Like, this seems so out of context. How in the world can that work? Well, here's how it works. Here's why you and I glory in tribulations now that we're accepted in Christ Jesus. Notice the words that Paul uses in verse three. At the end of the verse, he says, Knowing that tribulation is worketh now pause knowing that tribulation worketh circle those words tribulation works tribulation works let me tell you guys something tribulation works <laughs> tribulation is effective tribulation is productive tribulation is fruitful Tribulation does things in our lives that we would never do for ourselves or never be able to do for ourselves. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says that he works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That's actually not what that verse says. That's Romans 8.28. It's quoted the wrong thing. Philippians 1.6 says that he is faithful to to complete the work that he began in your life. Now just put those two things together. One was a mistake, but I think it was divine <laughs> mistake. <laughs> is that he's working all things together for good and he's faithful to finish what he started within our lives. And one of the ways in which he finishes what he did, is doing and works all things together for good is through the trials, troubles and tribulations of our lives. Those things are very effective in bringing God's objectives to bear upon our lives. And his objectives, his goals, are very good, what he wants to do. And tribulation works. It works. It does what God intended it to do. Now, the reason I can rejoice in tribulations, even though they're painful and they are what they're called, they are tribulations, they are troubles, they are issues, is because I know that in him, everything is measured, meaning that he's in control of the, the circumstance. It's also intentional, meaning that God has a very specific reason why I'm in that tribulation or that trial. He knows what he's doing. Because it's also effective and it's for my good. And because I know all of those things, even though the trial comes, I'm able to rejoice in the trial because I know those things are true concerning that trial. He goes on to say that tribulation works, first of all, patience. Now, how does tribulation work patience within my life? It works patience in my life two ways. Number one, oftentimes I realize that the trials that I'm facing, and think about the trials in your life, past, present, or future, much of the tribulation that comes to us is the result of our impatience, isn't it? You know, I cause myself problems because I don't wait long enough for things to, to to work out or resolve or to come or to fade away or whatever needs to happen. And I bring the troubles on myself because of my impatience. The other reason I need patience and that patience is a problem or impatience is a problem is because when a trial comes into my life, what is my instinct as a man? Say, who said that? Say, say it out loud fix that, right? We're guys, right? When a problem comes, what do we do? We fix it. We fix the problem. But sometimes what happens is that God, he sees a problem in us and he says, you know what? I'm going to fix that problem. And so God brings a trial or allows a trial to come into our lives because he has a problem that he wants to fix. Well, our instinct is once the problem comes, that we want to fix the problem, not the problem with us, but the problem of the trial. So, we're, so here's what we do. We try to fix the fix that God has brought into our lives to fix us because we're messed up and he knows that we need an adjustment. And so we immediately, we jump on the trial. We're like, I'm going to fix this thing. I call a doctor or I call the insurance company or I check the bank statement or I take out another credit card to cover the margins or whatever. You know, and I'm going to fix this fix that God has got me into. But now, God has to put me in another fix to fix my attempt to fix what he was initially trying to fix when he put me in the fix in the first place. And all of a sudden, this vicious cycle of fixes begins, and things get so complex and so messy that we come to the point where we go, ah, I can't do anything about it anymore. And God says, good, now just watch how this works out. And he goes, blah, 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 blah. he moves everything around, and he fixes us. He fixes all the situations. We come out of the thing, and we go, wow, this is great. <laughs> Amazing. I was talking with a brother yesterday He was telling me about a situation very similar. There was a problem, and there was an attempt to fix that problem. And the fix just got deeper and further and went further and, further and further and further to the point where he just said, God, I give it to you completely. He said he did that on a Tuesday. By Thursday night, the entire thing was resolved. It's amazing what God can do when we have patience to just allow him to do it. So tribulation works patience in us, right? And then patience goes on and it says that patience works experience. Do you see that there in verse four? The patience now gives us experience. Well, now that I have had patience long enough to see God come through in this trial, now I have the experience to draw on next time I get into a situation. Remember when The last problem came up, and we waited on God and surrendered it to him, and he took care of everything? That's experience, right? And so what does experience now do? Experience brings hope. Hope is the absolute expectation of coming good. I'm expecting good to come from this the reason I can expect good to come from this is because I have experience with this in the past, and I've seen God come through in the middle of my tribulation. And then it says, I love this, watch this, verse 5. If someone catches on to this this morning, I'm going to save you a world of hurt. He says, and hope makes not ashamed. Do you see that word there, ashamed? Can I ask you guys to think about the times in your life that you have been the most ashamed of something that you did? Or something that's going on in your life. And can I suggest to you that probably the reason why you did something that you were ashamed of is because you didn't wait long enough for the the resolution of a situation or a circumstance. Or there was impatience. Impatience often leads to shame. But hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. Uh, uh, several months ago, a woman called up the church and she made an appointment to come in and talk to me. Sweet um, woman, uh, a little bit older, and um, has grown children. And she came to me and she said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm having issues, I'm having anxiety. You know, there's there's just various things going on in, in the whole thing. And I said, okay, well, what's, what's the deal? And she said, well, on a, on a particular date, Uh, She said, I was sitting in my car, I was sitting somewhere, and all of a sudden a voice came to me um, as clear as crystal. She said, and the voice said, where are you going to bury your son? And she said, my son was healthy, my son was well, there was no problems with my son at all that I knew of whatsoever, and all of a sudden this voice, out of nowhere, where are you going to bury your son? It was unmistakable. And she said, 10 days later, he went into the hospital diagnosed with something, and he has been in the hospital ever since, up and down uh, for the past several months, and we don't know what is, is going to come of it. And she said, and I have not been able to sleep, I have been, you know, this, this whole thing. And she said, why is God doing this to me? And I looked at her, and I just said, listen, I just want to tell you, I said, I'm not God, and I, don't, I can't answer every question. But everything that I know of God and I know of the time of him in the time that I've been walking with him, that voice that you heard was not God. Because that is not what he does. The Bible says he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that the the voice of prophecy, the, the voice of the spirit in a person's life is for edification, exhortation and comfort. He doesn't do things to just scare us and see, see if he can just watch us. Someone's walking along just great. I'm going to pull the rug out from under him and watch them fall. I so said, that, that's not God. He doesn't do things like that. The way that God prepares us for something is not 10 days before something happens. Say, how are you going to fix this? He prepares us years in advance for the things that are going to come. Years. He gets us ready for it. That's just his way. He's very careful in the way that he leads us. I said, my prediction is that this is going to turn out just fine and that your son is going to be just fine. Well, some time went on and her son recovered and he was doing well again. And she came to me with just such joy. And as she was giving the report and the the whole thing, I just said to her, I said, now listen to me very carefully on the other side of all this. What you have gained through this entire experience is you have gained experience. Right? You heard that voice. You questioned if it was God, you saw the outcome, and now you know what happened. So next time something like that happens, don't forget this experience. Do you understand? That's how this works. Tribulation, patience, experience, hope, love. There's a whole process, and tribulation works. So what's the outcome on the other side of tribulation? Is that the love of God reaches into further and deeper areas of my heart where previously I had not known God's love. And he uses the trials and tribulations to do it. I'm going to say something radical. Tribulation, suffering and trials is the gold rush of the Christian life. James would write and he would say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials and temptations, knowing that the trial of your faith is more precious than gold, which is refined by fire. Because suffering is something that we cannot do in heaven. Do you understand that? When we are in eternity, for all of eternity, we will never suffer. We will be in paradise forever. And that has its advantages, trust me. I'm looking forward to those days. But what it also means is that the things that are added to us through suffering cannot be added to us in heaven. The ways that we experience God in the midst of our sufferings are ways that we will never experience God when we are in heaven unsuffering. And so therefore our sufferings in this life afford us an opportunity to know God, experience God, and grow in God and change in ways that even in heaven we won't be able to. And in that, they carry with them much preciousness. Because when you compare the time that we're on earth with the time that we're in heaven, which is eternal, this is temporary, that's eternal, then that means that the trials that we face in this life are opportunities that we will never, ever, ever have again for all of eternity. And they become like gold when you realize that God is using every one of those things to fulfill His purposes in us, they become valuable. So now we can glory in tribulations. Just think about you say, "Wait a minute, that didn't sound like an advantage when, when you first said, "Wait, we glory in tribulations." But it's actually a great advantage, because we realize what tribulations are. They're gold. And so it's actually an advantage, it's to our benefit when we go through trials and suffering. The reason why trials and suffering hurt is because we forget about eternity. We think, oh, well, this is my life, I only have one life, I'm only going to live once. I lost my leg, I don't have a leg for the rest of my life. No, 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 you don't have a leg for the next 30 or 40 years, (laughs) maybe, you know, that's extreme, you know. But for the gazillion years that follow, all the things that happen in your life because of that trial are yours forever. But if you forget about eternity, then suffering hurts. When I remember, like, oh yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm on this earth to be prepared for heaven. Now it takes on a whole different context. And there can be rejoicing in my sufferings rather than bitterness, anxiety, you know. I'm realizing what it is, and I realize who's in control. God's in control. So the love of God is shed abroad. Well, I used the whole time this morning to talk about the first of these three questions, so (laughs) rather than kill you by (laughs) taking you through two more of them, I'll tell you to read ahead. And next week, where are we, December, yeah, we'll be here next week. Um, We'll continue in Romans 5. The the other two are much quicker, so we might break into chapter 6 some next week too and, uh, and continue from there, but... God is good, isn't he? Citizens. Citizens.